0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary and also host of the podcast. And I have with me, joining by Zoom, Dr. Terry Johnson. Terry, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Uh, you're very welcome, and it's an honor to uh, participate. Terry
0: Johnson's the senior minister of the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, and a teaching elder in Savannah River Presbytery of the PCA. He will be celebrating, if I'm remembering rightly here, his 35th year at Independent this year. He's been there since 1987, so I think 87 to 2022 is 35 years. He's a prolific author, having published books on a variety of theological and biblical subjects, and today we will be discussing his latest book, released just last month from Christian Focus Publications, Understanding Family Worship, Its History, Theology, and Practice. Terry, this book's intended to be a companion volume to your earlier manual on the subject, the Family Worship Book. How do you intend parents and families to incorporate this new uh, monograph into their thinking and practice of family worship?
1: I think the the main um, the main reason for it is to is to just go deeper in persuading people that this is something that. Uh, that our theological, biblical, ecclesiastical uh, ancestors uh, believed was of vital importance. And so to look at it more deeply than was possible in just the introduction to the family worship book, to look at it um, biblically, theologically, historically, uh, to show the lineup of the great heroes of the faith from the past, who from the time of the Reformation, at least, um, all the way into the 20th century were unanimous and in emphasizing the importance of, of family piety, family devotions, family worship, and uh, what an anomaly, in, in light of that history, the present dearth of the practice of family worship is um, in our era. What? You know what?
0: I I wasn't sure if I was going to ask this question, but what might be a contributing cause to the decline in interest in family worship? Is it just? Do you think it has to do with a decline in family piety, or something a bit more social, like I don't know, the introduction of television into the home and how that's dominated uh, domestic life over the past fifty or sixty years?
1: I think that that's probably uh, part of it. What's What's ironic is that we've never had um, more leisure time, and yet our perception is that we have never been busier. But I think that our busyness is taken up uh, not only with vocational activity, but also with leisure pursuits, with entertainment of all, of all sorts. So, for example, the, the family uh, involvement in soccer leagues, which we were uh, involved in when my kids were growing up. Um, but that can be a great uh, consumer of time. It can be disruptive of the family uh, dinner hour. Um, the games on the weekends can be disruptive of, of, of uh, family devotional life and Sunday church uh, attendance. So that's why I see I see um, both public worship, Sabbath observance, and Family devotions. I see those all being wrapped up together and uh, treated them together at the beginning of the family worship book, but then reinforcing that again with greater depth, more uh, biblical, and even practical argumentation for why this is important. So, uh, to put it another way, I think one of the great um, concerns of parents, maybe the single most important parents' uh, uh, concern of parents, is that they pass on their faith to their children. And um, I mean, nothing is more important to a parent than that. So, what 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 are the means? What are the given means? I mean, granted, um, faith is a is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's the Spirit who will regenerate our children and draw them to Christ. But are there means that He uses? And the answer would have to be yes. Well, what are those means? Well, it's the ministry of the Word in the context of the gathering of the church on, on Sundays for public worship and the daily devotional life of the family in the home. And uh, the neglect of those means um, uh, is uh, are, is going to have a, a damaging, likely to have a damaging impact on, upon our children. I mean, God is faithful, uh, certainly, but you, we want to be using the means that he has given to be faithful to those means. Um uh, so that we, we are, um, you know, so that we are uh, doing our part and what we're uh, obligated to do to, to see that our children get the exposure uh, to the, the whole counsel of God and the gospel of Christ crucified um, in those two very important settings.
0: And it's, it's really a matter of do we believe the Lord? Because if we do, then we're going to seek to be faithful to His injunctions to us to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they would reverence yes. Him and and know who He is and and capture a, a vision of His glory in in His beauty, even in our even in our home life. You know, one feature of the book you've already hinted at this um, that really struck me as I was reading it, and it's a short volume. Uh, I think it's it's under a hundred pages. I read it yesterday and today, and and. Um, i didn't rush through it and really benefited from it um, but one of the things that really struck me was that you make your argument for the propriety and even necessity of family worship and and certainly family religion from a thoroughly historical grounding you've already said you're going back to the Reformation and coming up to the twentieth century in your survey but as as we consider the many voices that you bring into this into this conversation, if we want to put it that way um the question that we might answer our, for our listeners is, what is the historical theological background of this book as you lay it out in the first chapter? In other words, what would be the answer of this great cloud of witnesses if we were to ask them, where is the ideal Christian life to be lived? What would they say?
1: Yeah, The answer of the Reformation was it's, being, it's lived in families. Yeah. Uh, the contrast of being— that the ideal Christian life coming out of the Middle Ages was, it's lived in a monastery. So that if you're really a devoted Christian, um, if you're really one of the, those who are truly, truly zealous for the kingdom of God, well, that means you're going to embrace the life, the ascetic life of the monk, and you'll, um, uh, you'll join with a monastery. That's where the spiritual elite were living. Well, the Reformation um, rejected that notion, and said, "No, the Christian life is meant to be lived in families, not by withdrawing from the world and into uh, a, a monastery. but in, in the life, uh, the cloistered life of the monk or the nun. No, it's meant to be wrought out in the context of families and um, of your vocation in the world and and in the context of marriage. So that was uh, that was revolutionary. In fact, one uh, well known Harvard." Uh, historian has said that 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 uh, doctrine of vocation and doctrine of the family was as much a uh, a radical a revolutionary insight as was the doctrine of justification by faith it's such a departure from the medieval idea of where where is the the ideal christian life being lived reformation says being lived in a family
0: you know that's reflected in Luther's life. My wife just read Douglas Bond's um, kind of fictionalized account of the home life of Luther. It's Luther in Love It focuses on the relationship between uh, Luther and uh, Katerina Van Bora, and obviously getting into his relationships to each of his children, and um, and and that really is one of the things that. Those of us who are familiar with the life of Luther, we remember him for, not just his heroic stand for justification by grace through faith in Christ, but also his commitment to uh, uh, being very involved in his family and not being removed from them and not seeking to isolate uh, ministers from the day-to-day grind of changing diapers and taking out uh, trash or disposing of refuse, however they did it back then. Um, and, yeah in
1: one sense um, it's easy to live a Christian life when you're cloistered you know you't have that, you don't have the problems of dealing with a spouse you don't have the problems of dealing with um, your children um, you don't have the the problems of, of dealing with uh, an employer um, and, and so to withdraw from all those areas of tension and struggle and conflict and um, uh, labor, uh, in, in a sense, it's, that's an easier context within which to live a Christian life. But to live the Christian life where you're dealing with all of the above all of the time, um, that, that's a challenge. And yet, I, I, you know, it's been the Protestant view and um, the right biblical view that that's, that's the life that we are called to as Christians. Uh, let your light shine before men that they may see your good work and glorify it. Your Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. We are to be uh, um, in the midst of a corrupt, uh, perverted and corrupt world, shining as lights in the world, so, uh, according to Philippians 2. So, um, uh, yeah, yes, it's the family plays a role that was underappreciated in medieval Christendom.
0: Now, that's very insightful, and um, and I appreciate how you put that because we can tend to valorize family living as this wonderful and, and glorious thing, and it is a wonderful thing, and it's full of beauty and, and satisfaction. I look at my kids as they run around our house after dinner and before family worship, and, and I just smile because they bring me delight. But at the same time, it's very hard. It's physically demanding when they're young. It's emotionally and psychologically demanding as they get older and move into teenage years, and then uh, the demands just... Kind of change without really going away, even as they leave the home. From from what I hear from older, wiser parents uh, than myself. Well, moving into our next question, uh, you know, this book is about family worship in particular. So you you talk about generally uh, the place of kind of family religion and devotion, but family worship as an activity, how does that fit into the overall scheme or, or complex, rubric, whatever, of family religion? Maybe in other words, what is the appropriate family setting of family devotional activities?
1: Um, well, the, the setting needs to be the, 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 the godly family, the family is being led by those who are devoted Christians. So by way of contrast, if, if, if there's a formal family devotional time that is being um, conducted by parents and it's being conducted dispassionately and it's being conducted um, in the context of hypocrisy and carnality uh, that's, that's, Going, not going to bear fruit. In fact, it's going to probably produce the opposite fruit than, than what is intended through family worship. So the whole assumption behind the conduct, conducting family worship is that uh, it's being conducted by those who are truly devoted to Christ and are living for him, and so are able to provide a model of what it means to be a Christian to those who are being led, uh, that is the children, they're being led in the family worship by the father who is functioning as a priest in his home.
0: So what you would say is, within the family context, family worship can't be divorced out of the maybe the, the bigger picture push of parents striving to be the kind of men and women that they want their children to be.
1: Yeah, I think it mirrors uh, what we say about public, public worship. I mean, if you're just a nominal believer— And uh, just, uh, you know, dragging your children to church and you're indifferent and you're not engaged. And then there's hypocrisy in the home Mm -hmm. um, uh, and your life um, Friday through or Monday through Saturday is not consistent with what you are claiming to be. And uh, uh, showing the world that you are on Sunday, that's that's not going to bear fruit. I mean, we we all know of the complaint from um, often from those who are brought up in church-going families, the complaint that the church is full of hypocrites. Well, I think one of the major reasons why that, um, that proverbial complaint gets voiced is because of the number of people who are brought up in homes where there legitimately was hypocrisy, where everybody dressed up and was freshly scrubbed and well-groomed on Sunday and projected a false image, and then, and then for the rest of the week— um, lived uh, contrary to everything that was represented by that Sunday image, well, I think the same would apply to uh, family worship. If the family is has a regular 10, 15 minutes of the devotional life where the Bible's read and a song is sung and uh, and and so prayers are offered, and then as soon as that's all over, we revert to a worldly, carnal, hypocritical um, a way of life in the home, well, that's that's it's going to prove to be a useless exercise.
0: No, that's absolutely the case, and I've seen that in my own experience, um, uh, particularly in my family growing up. Uh, so. I want to move into a little bit more of, of kind of the meat, meat and potatoes of your book. <laughs> you you give a case for family worship, and and you draw, um, you draw this case on biblical grounds and lines, but also in kind of historical theological uh, method as well. So, starting with the biblical case, what kind of biblical case can we build for the necessity of family religion or family worship? Is there anywhere in Scripture that says? You must have fifteen minutes of catechesis and singing of psalms every day in your home, or is it is it a bit of a different kind of case than that?
1: Um, no, of course there isn't. Uh, there isn't a specific commandment that says thou shalt uh, do, uh, but we what you have instead is what's modeled going all the way back to Genesis eighteen, where uh, Abraham is is instructed to to uh, rear his children um, rear, rear his children in godliness. Uh, if I can read that passage from Genesis 18. So God says uh, of Abraham, "I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what He has promised him. I will be a God to you and to your children. Well, how's that going to happen? How will the God of Abraham become the God of, his, of the children of Abraham? Well, it's going to be by Abraham um, um, instructing his children in the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the, the responsibility for their what uh, the Apostle Paul will call nurture and admonition in the old version of the Lord in, in Ephesians 6 uh, that responsibility of of transmitting faith to the children of the covenant is placed upon Abraham and with Abraham to parents ever thereafter so that this is the older authors were always pointing out this is the only church that there was at that time uh, you go back to adam and eve that adam and eve are the church that its families that are perpetuating um, the truth, uh, true religion in these, in these early um, centuries. So when you come to Abraham, that's what's uh, still the order of the day. It's going to be through Abraham that Isaac, and then for, through Isaac that uh, Jacob and Esau, and then uh, Jacob's sons and so forth throughout the whole history of Israel. Then, then these commands get repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 6 Um, That the parents were to be teaching their children when they rise up and when they lie down and when they go out and when they come in. Hebrew expresses comprehensiveness in extremes. And so when you have when you lie down and when you rise up, that means all all the time. Uh, That was to be a characteristic of the family. And then Ephesians 6, um, the responsibility to rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So you have the basic responsibility being placed on parents for the Christian nurture of children. Uh, so that's where, that's where the responsibility really begins is, is, is with that. Then I think the older authors would point out, uh, for example, just the general uh, commands that are applied to Christians, like the one another, you know, to be kind to one another, to exhort one another, to teach one another, to pray for one another. All of those are, are, um, are, are directed to Christians generally. And, and so by implication, it certainly would be the case that parents would be responsible for fulfilling uh, those ideals in the context of the family. If we're to be, all to be um, exhorting each other, well, you, certainly parents should be exhorting their children. And if we're to be teaching each other, well, then, then parents would be teaching their children. Uh, so you have the specifics of parental responsibility, and then you have the um, the general um, uh, responsibilities that are given to Christians that would uh, have application for parents in relation to their own children. So it's pretty, it's, it's very clear that teaching your children the essentials of the faith. But the idea that that would be done without the context of prayer and praise doesn't make any sense at all. Of course, if you're responsible to teach your children the things of God, you're not going to do that in a vacuum. You're not going to do that in some kind of a stale um, a- a- and academic context. Uh, the Bible's going to be open. You're going to open it with prayer. The Bible's going to be opened. You're going to, you're going to um, you're going to express and sing the praises of God. So so a case can be built. um, And like I say, generation after generation after generation saw this, and it was absolutely clear to them of this parental responsibility. Uh, And then then to put one other uh, nuance on this, um, you know, morning and evening prayer, that's been a part of the life of the church going all the way back to David and Psalm 141 where David is offering up his prayers at the time of the evening sacrifice. In Psalm 5, he's offering his prayers at the time of the morning sacrifice. So morning and evening prayer becomes a, 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 a pattern of discipline for the people of God going all the way back uh, to the, the er- earliest Bible times. Morning and evening sacrifice, morning and evening prayer. That's the pattern. Well, that's picked up by the early church. Um, that's picked up by the monastic orders. That's picked up by the Reformation churches, morning and evening sacrifice, morning and evening prayer. The, uh, the, the worship of the temple was the basis for the worship of the synagogue, which is the worship of the temple minus the whole apparatus of sacrifice. But what happens at the time of the Reformation is the daily worship that was being conducted in the churches moves into the home so that the home becomes the basis for the offering of morning and evening prayer. Um, rather than um, the gathering, the church, which would be remote um, and distant and difficult to get to for many, many people. So Sabbath, on the Christian Sabbath, yes, the church gathers, but the daily prayer uh, is that which uh, may be offered in families.
0: And so now, as as we move into considering what is to be done in family worship, not just when it is to be observed— what would you say are the primary elements of family worship? Are they the same as the elements of corporate or public worship in our churches?
1: You're not going to administer the sacraments uh, because that is an ordinance of the church. Um, so the the normal elements would be um, the reading of scripture, prayer, and the singing of praises. So you won't have a sermon. Again, that's that's the responsibility of ordained leadership and uh, the responsibility and the context within which that is exercised is the public services of the church, as, it, as is the case with the sacraments. But in family worship, where there's you don't have the leadership of uh, ordained ministers, you certainly can read the Bible, and you can certainly sing the praises of God, and you uh, can certainly offer up prayers of praise and confession of sin and um, uh, intercessions. And uh, so, and I think you don't have to take a lot of time to do this. I, you know, I think that some people get intimidated by the whole idea. I've been I've been surprised at the number of men who are um, very intimidated by the idea of having the family worship and leading the family in, in its prayer life. Um, and really, it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. You gather the family and you sing some hymns. Uh, and Psalms and you read scripture and you pray and it may or may not have a time of instruction or or you may catechize or um, you know you may um, review the the Apostles Creed or the Lord's Prayer like we we have often used family worship time as a time to learn the fixed forms in our church meaning by which you know we use on Sunday morning we use the Apostles Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the doxology and the Gloripatry every every week. And so when our children memorize those in family worship at home, well, that reinforces what's going on in the public worship service. And what's going on in the public service is reinforcing what's going on in the family service. Um, and, and so they're able to transition very easily from the family to the public service and participate in it at a very, uh, at a very early age. It's counterintuitive in one sense that These more traditional and formal churches where you have these fixed forms are actually easier for children because they can memorize whole chunks of the service if that's being reviewed at home so that you're saying the Lord's Prayer every day. Or maybe for a couple of months, you'll say the Apostles' Creed every day. And maybe a few months later, you'll sing the doxology as as part of your regular family worship. And then in another month, the Gloria Patri. So that the the, repertoire that the children are learning is being built up over time. So I think it's important not to be too ambitious. Don't say we're going to have an hour or a half hour. But just, uh, I think the navigators were very wise when they produced their little pamphlet entitled Seven Minutes with God to get people started on a quiet time. Anybody can can, uh, find seven minutes in which to devote to reading a few paragraphs of Scripture and praying. As soon as you start with seven minutes, you'll want 15 minutes, right? You're going to want more than seven minutes. Because you'll enjoy the reading, and you want to have the time for prayer. So that's, that's why I encourage don't, don't be ambitious. We are in a very frenetic age. We're running around with like uh, chickens, sort of proverbial chickens with our heads cut off. And, and uh, so we've got all these activities going on and all these time constraints tugging away at us. And uh, so what, what, to, what, what should we do about that? Well, don't be too ambitious. Try to find uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to set the family down. Uh, So for us, that meant the evenings when our children were young and when they became school age and were torn by uh, school activities and sporting activities and scouts and these sorts of things. Then we started doing it uh, first thing in the morning. So we'd have everybody at the table 7 o'clock in the morning. I had a gathering song as we were gathering. And as we all sat down, then we sang that we have a psalm and hymn of the month. That you'll find in the family worship book and we follow that in our congregation it, so we'd have the psalm of the month we'd sing a couple of the previous months psalms or hymns and then we would read a portion of scripture and then i would pray yeah i don't i don't know if this might help but you know i didn't i didn't grow up with this and i didn't learn about this by reading books i'll tell you how i i, ca- I came on the, the idea of family worship is i brought my firstborn home from the hospital And I held him in my arms and I was overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility, my stewardship of the soul of my son. And I said to myself, I don't want to find myself 18 years from now when he walks out the door and goes off to college, assuming he does, I don't want to be filled with regrets for all that I always wanted to do, but never quite got done. And neither did I want us to be, all right, we're going to do this and then uh, fall into patterns of inconsistency where we, you know, we were able to do it for a couple of weeks and then we fell off from doing it and a month would go by. And then when guilt would finally overcome inertia, we'd go back to it again. I didn't want that to happen. So I figured if we could, if we could be disciplined about brushing our teeth and combing our hair In other words, hygiene and grooming, we're all pretty consistent about those things. Why can't we be consistent about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, family devotions? So it's a discipline. It's like public worship is a discipline. Family worship is a discipline. Sabbath observance is a discipline. We don't come by them easily. There's always something else to get in the way. Just like you could make an excuse for not brushing your teeth or taking a shower you know, it's time-consuming. You could be watching the television. Uh, you could be heading down to the Y. You could just be going straight off to work. There's, there's always an excuse for something else. This is why they need to be put into the calendar, into the routine, a regular part of the life of the family.
0: Yeah, they have to be made non-negotiable, except in cases of emergency. I mean, that's really what it needs to come down to. Now, uh, you give you have a whole chapter on here on prayer. I don't, we don't have time to get into that, but I do want to commend that to our listeners. Um, this book is is worth it from front cover to back cover, but even just that one chapter on helps for family prayer is worth the price of the book, not that the price is all that high. Uh, it's worth more than the price of the book. But uh, you you have a chapter on objections, and there are a couple objections that really resonated with me and my own uh, family background Um both, you know, growing up in a working class environment, but also having a big family now and being the father of of a large family with six small children. What would you say to the father or the mother who objects, you know, Dr. Johnson, this is all good, but I can't handle it. I can't handle even 10 or 15 minutes of family worship. My family is too big. My kids are too little, or I'm just too ignorant or, or unsure. What would you say to the parent who kind of puts their hands up and says, I just can't handle it?
1: I guess I would want to explore the reasons why that would be the case. What? Um, and maybe there needs to be a reevaluation of the other priorities of the family. What, what is it that you're doing? It's, it's, um, it's like a family that tells me they can't, can't come back for Sunday night service because they're so tired. Well, maybe you need to look at what's happening on Monday through Saturday. Maybe you're worn out by the time Sunday comes around. And you need that time to just relax because of again of the frenetic pace of life Monday through through Saturday. So instead of being prepared for a Sunday Sabbath devoted to holy rest, as the confession calls it, devoted to the things of God, you've worn yourself out. So of course you're exhausted by Sunday. And you're giving you're giving the Lord the second best of your energy and attention and your thinking. Um, so I would say if that if you just can't do it, I would really want to look at, well, what exactly is going on? Uh, are mother and father agreed about this? Are they mutually supportive about this? Is either mom or dad being dragged into family worship like he or she is one of the children? Is that the problem? <laughs> There's not a parental u- unanimity about this? Um, are you? What are all these activities that have you so exhausted and... Um, scattered that you cannot find 10 minutes. I mean, that's that's just a couple of commercial breaks, right, of a television program. I mean, you can't find 10 minutes. If I say just start with 10 minutes, you can't find that. And 24-hour day,
0: that yeah, no, seems... That's, um, that, and that's a good response. It's helping walk... We have to help our people walk through or help to walk our people through <laughs> we construct that sentence. Um setting proper expectations for yourself in light of your family situation. I mean, if you're, you know, if you got three kids under three all in diapers, yeah, you're going to be physically exhausted at the end of the night so or the end of the day. So perhaps you need to pick a different time to do family devotions when your energy is up and you prioritize that or, or whatever. But then the other objection that, that really struck struck me more, you know, being here at Greenville Seminary, our professors really set, a very good model for us even with young children of having morning and evening family worship but then I look at our students and a lot of our guys are working uh, either a full or very demanding part time job even running a business while uh, taking a couple classes um, or even a full-time load and they're very faithful in family worship in the evening but they can't do morning and evening and then I expand out my you know my set a little bit more of, of people I consider, families I consider, and I think of the the working class family or the family of the trucker who's gone, you know, he leaves before his, his kids wake up, he's gone, you know, right before or after they go to bed. He, he can't do morning and evening family worship, but he does have some uh, regular devotions. So what what would you say to the extremely busy or working class family, where it's not a matter of soccer games and entertainment con- commitments and even social activities, but it's a matter of putting food on the table and and, and bringing home the paycheck to, to cover rent or mortgage or whatever. Or where both parents work jobs to survive and not necessarily to maintain an extravagant lifestyle and are absolutely exhausted when they get home or unable to maintain that kind of... Um, I would say, demanding uh, family worship schedule. H- how would you counsel a family in that situation?
1: Um, the the um, the faculty members who are urging twice a day family worship are correct historically. In that, all of the older authors are arguing for that, and you know, John uh, Murray McShane's uh, calendar of readings that's been very popular. Yeah, in fact, assumes, assumes that. that. Yep. Um, so they all agree on that. I, I frankly, I'm less ambitious. Um, that, again, I, I, I do have a very pragmatic streak that runs through all the principled um, disciplines that that uh, that I'm an advocate for, but I. I think that if you personally are, are have a devotional life that you, you are um, praising God and, and, and reading Scripture in your own private devotional life and that you're gathering the family you know, in the alternate times, maybe you're having morning devotions and you're gathering the family in the evening. Um, I'm not convinced that that somehow is less than what you ought to be doing. Um, I think you ought to be doing that. I think Jesus assumes daily prayers, right? In the Lord's Prayer, "Give us this day our daily bread." So that's a daily prayer. He's expecting we have a daily prayer life. Um, So, um, but that family that is so busy surviving, I I just I think they deserve our sympathy, and, and they should be praying that somehow they would have a a break of some sort vocationally that would allow them to, um, to carve out the time. It can't be, it can't be satisfactory for a family to, uh, parents to, for parents to rear their children and, and not have a religious environment in the home. Um, one in which there is regular scripture reading and prayer. So going going back back to bringing my firstborn home, you know, I, I realized again this was in a vacuum of family worship. I knew nothing about this, but I knew that when he walked out the door when he was eighteen years old, I wanted to have read the whole Bible with him. I wanted him to have exposure to the great. Um, devotional language of the Christian tradition found in the psalms and hymns. Um, I wanted him to have, uh, I wanted to have cultivated a taste for great hymnody and psalmody. I wanted him to grow up having heard on a daily basis, his father pleading for his soul. I wanted that to either lead to his conversion or haunt him into eternity. And, uh, and so the idea of life being arranged in such a way that that would be impossible, to me that's a tragedy um, and somehow needs to be overcome. So I don't want to judge someone who's putting in six, six, you know, 16-hour days that's not that's not what i face i don't know what that's like and if it was a mother and a father that's clearly not a good situation for uh the the children growing up in that home they're really deprived of their parents so i don't want to judge that i just want to say that's not a sustainable pattern and you would need to be praying for looking for some how to escape that and still and still be able to provide for the family
0: yeah, I know. And, I, and I'm not saying that it's a typical pattern. It's certainly not one that's typical in our Reformed churches that tend to draw more of a white-collar crowd. But I, I know of families where you have two working-class parents working very low-paying jobs with demanding hours that are physically exhausting. And and I wonder um, if I'm the pastor of a church with, with working-class families like the one I grew up with, you know, how, how would I best— Equip them and seek to come alongside of them to help them uh, navigate this and fulfill their parental obligations and delight in their children and not nearly, not merely see them as more mouths to feed uh, or something like that well dr johnson we 're coming up on our time you've already you 've already made it clear at the beginning and at the outset that this isn 't a matter of guaranteeing success we don 't trust the means we trust in the lord of the means but this is a matter of parents being faithful to that calling which god has has put before them to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the lord and um and and i like your last chapter uh, after the chapter on catechizing where you uh, you get into that parental hopes and and what our expectations ought to be you, the bibliography again to our listeners is worth the price of the book uh, there's there's just manifold uh, resources available to us out there from the Reformed tradition, and it's uh, deeply encouraging to know that that men who are steeped in the Scriptures over the centuries have thought hard and and deeply about about family piety and how best to um, come alongside of families and resource them for this most important work that we have before us. But do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners uh, before we sign off?
1: Um, yeah, I would just say don't get discouraged. Persevere. You know, if, if, um, if, uh, if I- events conspire to keep the family from gathering for worship on a given day, uh, don't despair. Just uh, redouble your efforts to gather the family back up uh, on uh, the next day. So the, what you just uh, have been repeating about means, I think, is very, very important. You don't trust the means; you trust the Lord of the means. But they are the Lord's given means. And does, does faith come by hearing the word of Christ? Well, don't you want to expose them to the word of Christ? Yeah. Um, is it not true that if we ask, it will be given to us? If we seek, we will find. If we knock, it will be open to us. Well, then don't don't you want to be praying uh, for the well-being of your family, I I think as a general rule, private prayer for private things, family prayer for family things, public prayer for public things. You know, you don't go in public as a minister and pray about your lust problem uh, out loud. That's a private prayer for private things. Um, So there is a different focus. Um, We don't pray specifically about our children. You know, as ministers, we're leading in the public service. We don't say, oh, yes, and little Johnny skinned his knee yesterday. Lord, please Heal little Johnny's knee. Not not in the public service. Um, So the public service, we pray about public things, things that concern the whole congregation. Private, we pray about private things. Families, we're praying about family things. We need to be praying about everything that's going on in the life of the family. That should be self-evident. That uh, the family needs food. The family needs protection. The family needs provision. The family has events that are going on in the life of the family about which there needs to be prayer. So it seems obvious to me. You have a family, families pray together because families have issues together. They have um they have circumstances that they're confronting together that should be items for prayer together as a family.
0: That's really well put. I'm going to steal that.
1: <laughs> private prayer for private things,
0: public prayer for public things, family prayer for family things. Um I, I think that could be some helpful advice even in our church prayer meeting sometimes. But um, Dr. Johnson, I really have enjoyed this. Again, we've been discussing Understanding Family Worship. It's History, Theology, and Practice by Terry L. Johnson, published by Christian Focus Publications, January 2022. It's available wherever books are sold, but, of course, we always recommend Reformation Heritage Books, WTS Books, other Christian booksellers as opposed to the to the big uh, conglomerates and um, – and uh, uh monopolies out there online it's uh 10.99 retail and i'm sure you can get it for less than that on sale i highly recommend it i'll be putting this book into my wife's hands to this evening and encouraging her to read it when she gets a chance because she likes um, reading what i'm reading and and i and it's not always applicable for me to pass along my interview books to her but in this case it's uh it's more than germane. It's, it's perfectly appropriate. So, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much again for joining me.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.